Over the Moon to welcome Richard McManus in episode nine of the ABA and PT podcast in this wonderful story, which I've stolen the title of from a book of one of Richard's early influences, Making the Impossible Possible. Richard tells his life journey, starting with the early influence of his father and his progressive views of inclusivity. He goes on to tell of his meeting of Bill Strickland, the author of Making the Impossible Possible. Richard was motivated by Bill's incredible stand for underprivileged people, his courage and resilience and the profound stand he had through his love of art and beauty after he was discovered and influenced by an art teacher. Richard goes on to tell us of his initial dream of becoming a writer at Kenyon College that led him to philosophy, then a move to pursue his dream of becoming a rock and roll star, which led him to working in a state institution for people with severe developmental disabilities and eventually to behaviour analysis and precision teaching. Eventually, he started his own program, The Fluency Factory, which is what he continues to do today. I'm really proud of this podcast and I'm delighted to share the story of this amazing, humble and passionate human being who has influenced so many learners and students and a pioneer of the PT field and believes that everything is possible for his students. I am so excited to have Richard McManus on the podcast. I have heard your name, you know, for so long. And heard so much about your current project, the Fluency Factory. Well, when I say current, it's not, not just current, though. That's, that's, I'll talk to you more about that. But thank you so much for being here on a warm Boston day, apparently. Yes, thank you for having me. It's wonderful here in Boston. It must be chilly where you are. Well, probably not by your standard, but by my standard, it's, it's warm. At 5.30 in the morning, I think it's like 30 degrees already, Fahrenheit, uh, centigrade. So what does that put you? Yeah, it's warm. It's been like 100 at least here for the last 40 days or something, which is exactly the way I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I like it hot. (laughs) So thank you so much. I started corresponding with you a few weeks ago, and here I am hassling you out to be on the podcast, only to read on Facebook that you're having some health issues, but still texting me at all hours of the day and night as if everything is continuing. It tells me a lot about you as an individual, and it's just great to have you here. So I wanted to start by asking you, you know, what your early influences were and, and how you found your way into precision teaching. But where did you grow up to start with? So I grew up in the Midwest in Pittsburgh. Right. And lived there really until I was going to college pretty much. I was very fortunate. I had amazing parents. My dad was chief of pathology at a big hospital in Western Pennsylvania. Right. And my mom at that time, was sort of very involved in all of the auxiliary stuff, but she was, her background was in social work. And my dad died very young. Right. But he had been, before that, he was kind of a revolutionary in a lot of ways. He hired the first black doctor hired into that hospital because it was an all-white hospital. Right. Wow. That was a little stunning for that hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody said to him, Dick, are you trying to make some kind of point? Because he fired the guy a month or two later. And he said, um, are you you trying to make some kind of comment about, you know, what are you doing? And he said, I just want to hire the best person for the job. And if they don't work out, I don't want to keep them. So he had a staff. I have photographs of his staff. He had Cuban doctors. He had black doctors. He had white doctors. It was quite a diverse staff. And for wow. that period of time, early, late 50s, early 60s, there was a remarkably diverse staff. Wow, that's fantastic. And, and he, I got very involved with a group in Pittsburgh called Friends Service Committee, which was Quakers, 
organized it. And then the kids who were in it, teenagers from all over Pittsburgh, did all kinds of different things together. So, and that was composed of every kind of kid. So one of the people that I got to know a bit was a guy named Bill Strickland, who probably is my major, along with Michael and Eric, my major influence for starting the Fluency Factory. Bill Bill's a black guy. He's about my height. We're both about 6'2". We're both mediocre to, at basketball, but we liked <laughs> to play it when we were kids. Yeah. Um, didn't matter as much for me, but culturally for Bill probably wasn't so great. He lived in a very poor neighborhood, all black neighborhood in Pittsburgh, where there is now the big football stadium. Right. Most of his place where he grew up is gone. But when we were about 16, the two of us, because we were tall, yeah. were painting a ceiling on a project for the service committee. We would we would get go out for work camps over a weekend. We'd go to different communities and the guy who was the chief of the service committee would say, okay, uh, you guys are going to be painting a hall that's about 12 feet high, or 14 feet high. It was some huge hall. We've got ladders and paint. You're going to just get up there and start painting. So we're both up on big, tall ladders in a hallway in a tenement building, beautiful building. It was all brick on the outside, but Inside was obviously not well cared for. And we're up there and Bill says to me, Rich, you see this light bulb? And the light bulb was hanging right in our face. And I'm like, ah, yeah, I see that light bulb, Bill. <laughs> and he said, this light bulb tells us that we're in the ghetto. And I'm like, wow. what do you mean? And he said, because the people who live in this building all think that they're not going to be here long. So nobody's doing anything to make it look nice. Nobody is doing any work to make this a better place to live. Gosh. And he said, and that's what I'm going to change. Wow. 16 years old. Gosh. So guess what he did? What? He changed it. <laughs> he has, I think it's now eight centers worldwide. And the place, his center in Pittsburgh is incredibly gorgeous. They teach kids art skills. They teach them uh, work skills. And I went out there as part of a, I was doing work for the Continuous Learning Group, which is a behaviorally oriented management and executive training group. Yeah. And I was there for their annual meeting. And I thought, well, what the heck? I'm in Pittsburgh. I'll try to get a hold of Bill and see what he's up to. Because yeah. I would never hardly went back to Pittsburgh after my dad died. And uh, I called up and I got lucky. He was in this, his center and I went over to see it. And he took me on a tour. Right. And, was, and what year was this? This was 1999. Right. And I was stunned. Really? Because all I can think is I could, I've always remembered that moment on those ladders. Yeah. And then to see what he had done with his life wow. was just incredible and stunning. Wow. And now he has a TED talk. He has, a, he has a book, which I will show you. <laughs> I love this, Richard. <laughs> to get a book on the podcast. Adorable. You can see the sun in the background, too. It looks like a beautiful day back there. Yeah, it's lovely. I'm sitting in the front couch in the waiting space in the fluency factory. Oh, you're in the. Nobody's here because vacation. <laughs> 
So this is the book he wrote. Yeah, Make the Impossible Possible. Can you mm-hmm. hold up a little bit more? I just want to read the subtitle. One Man's Crusade to Inspire Others to Dream Bigger and Achieve the Extraordinary. Well, I've got goosebumps reading that. Bill Strickland. He, I will link yeah. that in the show notes. Bless you. So, so 1999, amazing. So here is this guy that's profoundly influenced you about what's possible, even from really humble beginnings. Having come from a pretty privileged background yourself. Mm-hmm, very much. So tell us, after high school, what, was, what did you do next? Well, I went to college at Kenyon College, as you mentioned, and uh, I studied philosophy. I really went there to be a writer. I thought I was going to write. Yeah. But it turned out that the English department and I didn't get along very well. Right. So I got like an F minus on my first paper (laughs) and a whole back page full of red ink saying, this is a very dangerous beginning to your college career. And I thought. (laughs) Whoa. Wow. And like what yeah. happened to the student had you been? God only knows. I still don't know what I think. I think the problem had been all of my life. I had a big vocabulary, good writing style. Yeah. Very descriptive. And really nobody had ever edited me at all. Right. Pretty much left to do whatever I wanted to do. And I did a lot of things that I thought were good. Yeah. Nobody had ever said there was anything wrong. I always got good marks. So this guy was seeing that and thinking, this guy is, he knows enough to write better than this, but he's not. So I'm going to whack him upside the head. It's a big abyss of a front. Yeah. So then I did a couple more papers. The next one, I got a C or something. Then I got an A plus. Wow. Yes. But the one that got the A plus, I wrote almost entirely as. Uh, a sarcastic view of what it, what he wanted, right. and and I thought, oh God, if the paper that I think is really just garbage gets yeah. an A plus, and the paper that I thought was pretty good for my first college paper gets an F minus, clearly this I'm in the wrong place. I'll never understand what they're doing. Yeah. So I didn't last. I left the English department after freshman year. Right. I don't think I was ever really in it. And then I <laughs> tried to figure out what I would do next and uh, wound up in philosophy, where at least I understood what was going on. Yeah, right. And you're living at this point, where is Kenyon College? It's in the middle of nowhere in Ohio. <laughs> in Ohio? Bruce. It's about 12 miles from the geographic center of Ohio. What took you there? Oh, it had such a wonderful reputation for writing. Okay. That's really what I thought I would do. there for the English department? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. And what's the population of the town? Oh, God, I don't know. Back then, the whole college was 500 men. It was all boys at that time. Yeah. Less. Now it's flourished. Paul Newman went there right after World War II. Wow. And funded a lot of their... It turns out now Kenyon's pretty famous for theater. Right. uh, They always were famous for swimming, which I didn't realize. (laughs) Really high quality swimming competitions. And uh, for a small college. Yeah. They won like 20 something years in a row. They won the national championship for swimming. Who knew? (laughs) Anyway, that's where I went. So you are in philosophy. Yeah. So I majored in philosophy. 
Then I got out and thought, what the hell am I going to do now? I have a philosophy background. So I moved to Annapolis and worked in a boatyard and played harmonica in blues bands. <laughs> yeah. My goal was to be a rock and roll star. Yeah. And then I moved up to Boston where a friend of mine was a, who's a musician said, well, if you come to work at the institution where I work, you can always get a job. Um, then you'll have a day job and you can try to find a band or whatever. And what did you play other than harmonica? Nothing. Just, just harmonica. harmonica. Wow, how great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have learned another instrument, obviously, along the way. <laughs> so anyway, I, that's what I did for, I went and worked at a big state institution for people with developmental disabilities. Wow. Just basically a giant snake pit called the Fernald School. Wow. And what makes you call it a snake pit? What does that mean? Well, people were just crowded into these big wards built to house people. They weren't, mm -hmm. there was very little done to help people. And uh, I was fortunate though, that I made a lot of noise. I was sort of a, unhappy about how people were being treated. And I went to try to get services I was made some sort of a low-level functionary for the multiply handicapped unit, which had about 500 people living in it in 500. different buildings. Mm -hmm. Wow. Single ward might have 40 men or women all in beds. Really? Very, some of them never got out of the beds. Oh, my goodness. It was incredibly awful. Wow. So... I made a lot of noise and wound up, I went to get services. I got OTs and PTs to come out of the Shriver Center, where, which is clean and university affiliated and yeah. quite lovely, but mostly community oriented. Didn't actually do anything for Fernald where, where all these people were living. But I managed to cajole some people out. Yeah. And then I went to, I had a little group of, people that had either violent behaviors. I had one guy who had had a lobotomy who could run away to his home, which was quite a long way away. He could find his way home. And he was probably in his thirties then, or maybe forties. Yeah. It was remarkable. I'm like, yeah. how does he do that? So I went and asked for help from the behavioral department or the psychology department at the time. Yeah. And I got, guy who said, I can't come and help, but I can be your consultant. And so we took one little group of men, put them in a place and set up a token economy yeah. and started working with those guys. And then I also had spent some time learning about what other people were doing there. So uh, Murray Sidman had mm -hmm. a residential unit that his experimental subjects came out of. And the woman who ran that unit, Karen Bush now, Karen Finello then, was really my first mentor on behavior. She showed me how to shape behavior. Yeah. Years later, she said, I never showed you how to shape behavior. I said, no, you were trying to show me how to back chain. So I learned that. But while you were doing it, I also learned how to shape behavior. And it was a wonderful experience. And wow. that's why we installed Token Economies. And I got to move up into a behavioral psychologist position and was given an award full of 
violent, blind and deafblind men. And had about, I think about 18 or 19 men in one little um, ward and was ward four in the blind unit. And it was nicknamed the combat zone because these guys were so violent. Wow. And what was the treatment for them before you came along? They got meals three times a day. What else do you want? Yeah, gosh. Wow. And so tell me, early exposure where you learn to work in economy, start to learn about reinforcement. What did you decide to teach them? Or was it? Oh, it was pretty easy. Really? (laughs) Well, I mean, we had guys. It was a huge wave, probably same in Australia, of retrolental fibroplasia, which was um, when back in the period from, say, 45 to 50, maybe even a little later, 55, premature babies were saved by using oxygen. Right. And But it turns out that oxygen in preemies has sometimes a bad impact in their eyes. The rods and cones in their eyes can explode into weird growths and become non-functional. Right. So a lot of those kids, and there were some rep, there's some studies out there on the similarity between uh, children on the spectrum and RLF children. There are still some number of RLF children, but they're pretty aware now of that damage. But for a long time, nobody knew that that's what was going on. Right. And mostly these kids came from big urban areas because those hospitals had the oxygen tents and the equipment that they needed to save those babies. Right. So most of my men were from that generation. And they, I mean, they were in their early to mid-20s. And they were sitting in chairs or on beds most of the day. So that's a great spot if you're somebody in your early 20s. Yeah. And you want to do things. Yeah. The best thing to do is start throwing chairs and smashing windows. And we thought... Let's try to do something else. So we got a hold of some gym equipment. We got a hold. Uh, we taught ourselves and my my staff. I was all direct care people how to do sighted guide, and we take people out and run with them, take them out for long walks. I mean, basically, we built a physical environment. We got exercise bikes donated so they could ride on exercise bikes. All kind of things like that. And and building in a token economy. We didn't have one for that group. We had for my previous group, we'd had a token economy. For that group, we never did. We used, we didn't have a token economy. I'm not sure why I didn't import one to that group. Mostly because so much of it was one-to-one because of the blindness. Yeah. We didn't do as much group stuff, but we got rid of like, there used to be a giant riot every day just before lunch. Yeah. And the more I thought about it behaviorally, I thought, well, we have a giant ride, <laughs> all the beds, and everybody gets, and then we get food. Great, perfect. So I moved our lunchtime up. Yeah. Because we were right across the hallway from the cafeteria. Yeah. And got rid of most of the violent behavior around lunchtime by just doing that. Right. And then the the thing that got me going with PT was, I was now in the psychology department, and I was making graphs of this one guy, George. And George was probably the person who made my staff most unhappy because 
people would put on like two Johnnies and what's a Johnny? Like a hospital cover kind of thing. Oh my god. And they've got a bowl full of gruel. It was just chopped up food. And they'd go and feed George, who would be standing and he would be spitting the food back at them and scratching them as much as he possibly could while they tried to get the food into him as fast as they could. And I said, this is not a good way to eat. I said, I think what we need to do is teach George to feed himself. And everybody looked at me like, (laughs) where did this guy come from? So I said, well, I'll tell you what, because I'll just come here really early and stay late and I will teach him how to Stay quiet while he's eating, and then we'll teach him how to use a spoon, and he can eat by himself. And they all thought, go ahead, good luck. So we started teaching George to first to just stand quietly and not spit at us. And so I had a counter. I had some kind of piece of graph paper, and I don't even remember. I think I was counting spits probably. Yeah. And I had my graph paper, I think. There were like 100 in the first time I did it. So I thought, okay, I'll get a graph paper. I'll mark it up to 200. That ought to be plenty. There were no PCs around because this is a long time ago, Mandy. (laughs) This is really in the Stone Age. We started and immediately he went to 200. And I had to scotch tape on more pieces of graph paper and everything else. And I'm like, this is a great story. (laughs) Oh, God. And then I would take it to my boss in the site department and show it to him. And he'd say, wow, that looks great. And I thought, this doesn't look great. This is like a two-year-old could make a better look. This tells me nothing. Yeah. So then I, I went to a presentation because I was part of this department that Carl did on this chart that he had. And because tra- Carl was working in the same building I was, but not at all the same department. Right. And, And I'm like, wait, it goes from one in a day to a million? Can I please give me some of those? Oh, wow. So I started there. And at first, both with George and some of my other clients, uh, we were looking at all problem behavior, serious behavior problems. Yeah. And then I went to, I got a job running the, one of the first of the programs for autistic kids that was in the pri- a private program in the community because I had the institution did me in. I was close wait, to five years. I need years. to know about George. What happened to George when you started chatting his spitting? Oh, sorry. So George uh, not only learned how to do, to stand quietly, but to, learned how to feed himself with a spoon. We upped his so what did food. You use as, what did you use as rewards for the absence of spitting? We just waited. We wow. just, it was just a punishment. Come, It was basically a timeout kind of thing. So yeah. we would stand there. We had on the wall a variable interval uh, thing. So you would watch it and my staff could do it too. So they'd look at it and be like 1001, 1002, 1003. And when his hands were quiet and he wasn't spitting, we'd walk in and offer him more food and we'd walk back out and, once he, he got it down pretty quick, yeah. and then then we taught him to sit at a table and feed himself. Wow. And I had, like, did he like food? Well, yeah, food. Who doesn't like It's the only food he had. So, so why was he spitting? Because he was force-fed? I think so. Yeah. I think that and just, it was a whole thing was 
I mean, yeah. people, people like to behave. And if it's that's all you're going to get to do, that's your interaction. I mean, that was the other thing. As we went along, we could slap five. We could do hand touches and things like that. So many of the physical interactions that these folks never really got to accept if they like caused a riot. Yeah. You know, I had one guy that would do all kinds of self-mutilation so he could get put into the hospital. And then the hospital, he'd get all kinds of great medical attention. People would talk nicely to him. And we almost had our own special little isolation room in the hospital at that place because my guys, when I first got there, somebody from my group was almost always there. Either they got bitten or they hurt somebody or they, one guy would climb out the windows and break the windows as he went. Yeah. It was an entertaining group. Wow. Jeepers. So what happened to your team when, you know, you'd come in and go, look, let me show you how we can, you know, work with this client. Did, did you get people that were like, you know, really motivated to, to learn more and yeah. yeah. So you built this team. Wow. Yeah, that was, like, was, They were great. Who was influencing in terms of, you know, understanding operational definitions and like, were you doing your own research or like, who was, who was mentoring you at that time? I was really fortunate. Like I said, I had Karen Bush was a wonderful yeah, right. resource. Yes. And, and all of Murray's people, mostly Paul Touchette. Paul Touchette was so far advanced. Right, right, right. Of understanding behavior problems and understanding stimulus fading. And my boss was okay. He was. There was also a guy who later, who was not a chart person named Eric Ward, who went on to become a pediatric uh, behavioral person out in Indiana, speaking of Indiana, yeah. who became head of the department. He was a marvelous, marvelously well-skilled at thinking about behavior problems. And most of the work was behavior problems, but in an institution, it's kind of like the canaries in a coal mine. If the kid, if a person isn't misbehaving, there's something wrong with them. Yeah. Because that's the only way to get any kind of interactions. So so you start chatting. Did, Did you share your work with Carl? Oh, yeah. Well, Carl had started, I think it was after I'd left the institution. I got moved out of that job into another job where I had a bigger group of people. And my boss kept saying, well, this will be better. We don't want you constantly spending your time in those wards. We want you to sit in an office and plan and train. And that didn't work so great for me. Well, and what he sketched in was this place that I was going to take over with about 80 clients in two different buildings who was totally under control. And as soon as I saw the buildings, I thought, no, it's a total disaster. These folks, they don't, I mean, it's just horrible. It's dangerous. Yeah, right. So ultimately, I left the institution and started working in this program, Amigo, for autistic folks, uh, mostly teenagers, but some adults, and uh, was one of the first of the private programs in Massachusetts. Right. And And what year was this? 75. Wow. Okay. 75. And I was just really fortunate. I mean, we... Carl had set up the chart sharing that we called it the data sharing group. Yeah. And a bunch of us would go to that. We were very blessed. We had mm-hmm. Ian and Aileen uh, Spence, who at that time were work at first were working in New Hampshire. Yeah. Then they lost their job there and they started their own center in Connecticut. We had Paul Touchette. We had 
on a notable night, Eric and Elizabeth came down from Canada, and I knew nothing about either of them at them when I walked into that session. That was 1978 that mm-hmm. I first met them. It's a long time ago. <laughs> and we would all bring our charts and show what we were up to. And my charts at that time were, we didn't know anything about what Eric was doing until that night. And then all in one night, I learned about Terry Harris and Elizabeth. Terry was a first grader or kindergartner then. Yeah. And Elizabeth talked about what he was doing and shared what Eric had said, which is still burned in my brain. Yeah. And Eric destroyed all my data. <laughs> I put up these charts. And at the end of putting them all up, he said, uh, so, Richard, you seem like a nice enough guy, but why are you making this poor kid who can bang his head at 20 a minute do something that he can only do one in two minutes? That's horrible. And I was like, and all my answer in my brain was, he's the best we had. It was like multi-part pen assembly. It was a vocational task. Right. He's the best we have at that. Wow. And this this poor kid had been on phenothiazine, so I'm actually mm-hmm. Haldol. And he went into Haldol withdrawal while the blizzard of 78 was on here. So there was no way for him to get more medication. Oh, no. And he began banging his head, oh. which turns out is something that happens to people in Haldol withdrawal. Right. And it was just like, Oh my like goodness. that, which he had never done before. Wow. He was a kid who, would, when when we first got him, he'd been living kind of like an animal in a in a yard in Puerto Rico with his grandparents, and they sent him to Massachusetts on a plane. On the plane, there were marshals, and he, whatever was sedating him, wore off, <gasps> and he got loose. And the marshals wound up handcuffing and manacling him, and he was taken to uh, Boston City Hospital. When I met him, he was in a ward that had all plywood windows because he'd broken them all, and he was handcuffed and manacled to the bed. And I took off. I had them take off the handcuffs, Yeah. and he immediately grabbed my hand and bit me. And I said, I I think he's one of ours. So we took him to our residence where he just blossomed. He was so amazing. Oh, yeah. He was the head of special education for the city of Boston came to see him. And he was and and we did a tour of the school. And he's like, well, this is an interesting place. Because by then we had I had stolen a bunch of people who knew how to back chain who knew how to do airless learning. We were doing a ton of instruction. We had decided, you know what? These are teenagers. We're throwing out all this kid stuff. We're going to teach them how to use hammers and saws and do screen printing and things like that that are more interesting. And we got work from a big rehab center to do. This kid, Ricky, was the time the guy came in was up on a 10-foot ladder with an apron full of nails hammering two-by-fours into an overhead thing. And the guy was like, you're kidding me. I said, no, that's really Ricky. That's Ricky. Wow. And did did Ricky's family stay in touch with him? Oh, yeah, his mom. 
His mom was going to school then. She was in graduate program. Oh, wow. So she would come and see him. Wow. The last time I visited there, he still recognized me, which was stunning. Oh, really? He was like, whoa, it's him. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, and we were fortunate because we had Eric and Carl and a guy named Marty Kozlov, who nice. were consultants to our program that I had hired to come in. And especially Marty, we never got done what he and I wanted to do. And Shelly and I have talked about it occasionally, which is unlike like having a, that kind of big six approach yeah. to building skills yeah. really changed how we were teaching in that center. And we did a ton of work on big six stuff early, a lot of which other centers now use, but we were the first by far. Yeah. And what I got Marty to do is I thought Marty was at that time teaching in sociology at Boston University. And I said, and he and I, I had met him. He did a lot of parent training for parents of autistic children. And we had really hit it off. And I said, well, here's the thing, Marty. I now know how to teach reading to these guys. I know how to teach hammering. We've got kids doing saws. We've got progressively more difficult materials for all that stuff. But what they can't do is they don't socially interact well. And we need to figure out, and the reason is because we don't have the big six of social interaction. So like my newborn baby, Sarah, when she was a day old or two days old, could do a proper eye flash, I guess they call But Karen Pryor called it an eye flash. Right. She said, primates all do an eye flash. You walk in, any primate will give you like a little look. Yeah. And when yeah. we're talking about eye contact, we're not talking about yeah. staring at you. So I thought at the time we had just started and Marty was our consultant for that project. And the idea we were working around, he recommended a book called Behavior in Public Places, which by a guy named Irving Goffman. So we were thinking about how do we build, what is the big six of social interaction? How do we build that? Because everybody's trying to teach social skills yeah. to autistic learners, and they're starting way up here, and it's mm -hmm. not working. So yeah. we need to start down here at the foundation and build it up. And before we got anywhere, I got, there was a giant schism we had hired. I had hired a couple who were early ABA people from with a master's degree who were very much, this is how ABA works. Yeah. And we were not doing ABA from that period. We were miles ahead doing precision teaching from that period. And they were like, this is not what you teach, what they teach where we went to school. And they went to around me to the executive director and said, what we're doing is all wrong. And he believed them. And so finally, me and my staff all just went and did other things. Yeah. So, so that was the end of that. Wow. All that knowledge. Well, we disseminated a bunch of it. Yeah. I mean, we did a couple of papers. My friend Kevin Solston, he and I founded a company called Tools for Change. And we went out and trained people in uh, separate kind of programs. We did... Back when we had been at Amigo, we did a paper on 
what we had done to change the way vocational outcomes were going. Yeah. And Kevin did a really wonderful, simple training project to teach you to chart in like a half an hour using this series of steps that he had written. Oh, really? Fantastic. So, Are those resources still around? I was thinking about that because, of course, this is 20 years at the Fluency Factory. This year, right now, 20 years ago, I was trying wow. to find the place to open. Yeah. So, And I've now started a new venture called Iris with some other folks, former tutors of mine, a woman who's the founder of Decoding Dyslexia, Gene Tucker, some really remarkable people who are really reading-focused. We're never going to get to the reading part. Oh, my God. You shouldn't have let me talk. I love this. I have a million questions. I'm biting my lip. Well, keep going. It's, it's great. So, so you were just saying, where do we get started? Oh, the resources. Yeah. I can't find, I think I still have one of the books. Chuck bought them all. Chuck Murbitz and I yeah. were early friends over the internet a long time before I ever met him in person. And he loved that. He was like, this is the only thing I can just give to people. And we had produced, I don't know how many. When I say we, it was really Kevin, produced a whole bunch of these packages. They came with a pencil and a frequency finder and some charts and this instruction manual. And Chuck bought however many there were. He bought them all. He used back at where he was at the Institute of Illinois. Industrial Institute, whatever, yeah. before he wound up at the Chicago School. Right. And I think I've still got one. Oh, really? But almost everything else has vanished. Wow. Maybe I can get a photo of that for the, for the podcast. Oh, I really wanted to ask you, I know we're short for time, but you mentioned that you started doing parent training for, for parents of kids with autism. Where did you start when you started with parents? What would you start with? I did very little until we did tools for change. Right. Because when we had our center, it was six days, it ran six days a week as a day program. And we had Ricky and five other students in a residential program. So primarily what we did, I mean, the folks who had founded the program were parents of autistic learners. And they said, well, what we really want is a program that's there all the time. Yeah. Sort of the store 24 of, uh, Programs for autistic children, not one of these six-hour day programs. It was eight hours a day plus Saturday mornings. Yeah. And just staffing that, that's all we did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as far as parent training, once we got, once Kevin and I got out of that, then we did more parent training and a lot more training of people, especially professionals who were new to, I mean, we would get invited in because of behavior problems. And then what we tried to do was say, you don't really have a behavior problem. What you have is kids who aren't learning and kids who aren't learning are not happy. Yeah. And if, so you've got to create a learning environment. Otherwise, you're going to have behavior problems. Yeah. So that was much of what we did was uh, trying to teach people how to train, how to teach their students so they could become happy learners, as Elizabeth calls them. You don't have a happy learner. You've got problems. Yeah. So how did the Fluency Factory start? So I, in 1990, the the PT conference was here in Boston. Right. And the people who did the Sacagawea project were here. 
doing a retrospective on it because it had been in the 70s. Yeah. And um, I went to see them. And I was kind of stunned. I had already talked with Michael about starting the Fluency Factory. I had retained the name on the web as a website. And it took only 12 more years to actually do it. I was at the PT conference. And the presentation on Sacagawea was stunning because, among other things, I mean, I was, I said, well, from the outside, I'm trying to figure out if you looked at their, I don't know if you've ever seen the graphs that were done of their year-to-year progress. So they started in one of seven schools in a district in Utah. Yes. Or not Montana, excuse me. Yeah. And Great Falls, Montana. And they... This one school was the only PT program. The other six were doing whatever they had always done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I've seen that data. I will link to it in the podcast. Yes. Yeah, it's, you can still find some of it around, but much of it is scattered. Yeah. But the, the PT community supported this. So Eric Houghton, Elizabeth, a whole bunch of people who'd been developing worksheets and timed works and ways to look at things helped to put together this huge 1,600 sheets or so of timed materials for math, reading, kindergarten pinpoints, all kind of pinpoints. And the way the school worked, every year they they were a one through five kind of a setting. No, one through four. Fifth grade was middle school in that district. So – one through four, every year in the fourth grade, in like October, they gave them a test, the Iowa test, the basic skills. And if you looked at that test, the kids in the Sacagawea school went from around 50th percentile, where everybody else was, to by the time the fourth graders who'd been in a PT program since first grade yeah. were doing 94th percentile in reading Overall, 92nd in math, 98th in graphing. I don't even know why they had graphing, but they were charting their own stuff. So they had, it was something else, spelling, I think, that was only 89th. But if you looked at it, it was like this incredible divergence from what everybody else had been doing. Yeah. Uh, It was incredible. And there was a whole national diffusion network built around getting the PT project sent out to all over the country. So there were manuals. There was this giant library of materials. They were being disseminated all over the place. When I went to hear these, the two guys who had been the people who were in charge of the project at the school, Ray Beck went on to work for Sopris West. And the other guy is now, or was in Alaska. I don't know. Ray Beck is retired now. He's got to be in this middle or late 80s. But anyway, Ray, they were talking about what they did. And I was like, so, I mean, looking at those results, though, did you have kids like six hours a day being timed? And I thought, because, I mean, how did you do that? And they said, no, no, maybe 15 or 20 minutes a day. Wow. What? (laughs) Yeah. 15 or 20 minutes a day. That was about it. And we would select new pinpoints based on how they were doing. We had a really good spectrum of materials so we could move the kids up as they needed it or 
whatever. And I'm like, 20 minutes a day. Wow. That's amazing. And then they said, I said, and the results were incredible. He said, you, you don't even understand how, how different they were because in the other schools, special needs kids were excluded from the Iowa test of basic skills because they weren't yeah. going to do well. Yeah. In our school, we had everybody take the test. Wow. And our special needs kids outperformed the regular ed kids from the other schools. Gosh. And I was like, incredible. That's incredible. And that was relatively primitive. I mean, the kinds of reading that we can teach now, the level of reading instruction is light years ahead of what they had available for Sacagawea. Yeah. But the mass of children who were being involved, the, the giant group of all kinds of kids was different too. I mean, Typically, PT programs and ABA, ABA programs have, well, we're going to work with kids on the spectrum, or we're going to work with kids with learning disabilities, or we're going to work with kids with physical disabilities. And when I opened the Fluency Factory, my first couple students were local kids who were dyslexic, it turned out. But, but also, I had kids on the spectrum, and a lot of people were like, you should really open a program for kids on the spectrum. They're just multiplying. And I'm like, I really want a program for kids. Yeah. I don't want to differentiate types of kids. We'll take anybody and we'll work with them on what they need to work on. So we did. I mean, that's what we've done for 20 years. We've tried to serve whoever wants to come in the door. And tell us about how the program runs. Is it mostly after school or the kids come out of school to you? It's no, I wish. Yeah, you wish, yeah. None of our local schools have ever been supportive. And our kids mostly, it's almost exclusively after school. The few times it hasn't been, um, we've had kids who couldn't go to school for one reason or another. We, two years ago, we had a little first grader who was so violent, he got kicked out of school and his mom started homeschooling him. Yeah. We started with him here myself and one tutor coming in and working with them. And then the pandemic started and I thought, oh God, not Henry on Zoom. I mean, he can't go to first grade for good reason. He's a little, he's a little bit wacky, our Henry. And I said, and we're going to work with him over Zoom. Okay, we'll try it. We've never worked with a first grader over Zoom. We've been doing Zoom tutoring and over with dyslexic children for like eight or nine years. Wow, yeah. But was new to do a first grader was thank God his mom was uh, a saint. Yeah. And in, we started him in January by June, he had finished all of Michael Maloney's first book, wow. all six lessons. He was re a fluent third grade reader with really good math skills. And he was ready to walk into second grade. God. The school wouldn't take him back. <gasps> So they sent him to this special classroom in a nearby school district where he was phenomenal. And he asked, I don't know if he's still doing that. I think he doesn't even do this anymore. But as a second grader, he had to sign in in the special behavior class and then spent the rest of his day in a regular ed class because he was fine. He never had any more problems. Gosh, so what a great story. So, have you ever had a teacher that saw progress in the kid you worked with that came to you and said, can you tell me what you know? Yes, but not very often. Not very often. 
Yeah. Not very often. Yeah. And fortunately, we had a special ed director from up in Maine came down one time to see what we were doing. He had located us through a PT person on the web. And they said, well, if you want to see PT, you're going to have to go to the Boston area. You can go to the fluency factory, see what they do. So he came down and spent a Saturday with us and thought, wow, this is great. Sent a little boy who was a fourth grader who couldn't read at all. And his teachers, two of his teachers came, his regular teacher and his reading specialist, and they spent like four or five hours. The reading specialist said, I've been working with Michael since he was in kindergarten, and this today is the best I've ever seen him read. So from now on, I'm going to do what you do. And she did. And they, we changed their entire reading system oh. in the school. And it was amazing. It was so successful. Gosh, and did she learn to chat? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Well, Will Burrow, you may have run across Will. He was really into charting. And, of course, his staff thought he was crazy. They called him Dr. Dot. They were like, he wants us to do this charting, but it makes no sense to us. We don't understand it. And we don't understand what we're supposed to do with it. So then what Debbie said, who came down, Deb said, well, I get what you're doing with it because you're using it with the student. You and Michael were looking at the chart. Said it didn't make any sense to us at all as like a piece of, you know, bureaucracy, but as a piece of, as related to how you're teaching, that made sense. Yeah. So tell me, how do you recruit people and um, how many people are at the Fulton's Factory now and how many kids are you able to work with at any one point in time? That's the biggest flaw right now. We're having real trouble recruiting people. Yeah. Real trouble because I think that, I think what Laura, Laura actually runs the place now, Laura Jarvis, and she and I were talking last night about it and we're both like, especially teachers have been just devastated by the pandemic and the way it's been handled. Yeah. And they're done. They're just cooked. They don't want to add more hours. They don't want to add another place to go or another. So we're doing everything I can think of. I'm contacting former tutors and saying, do you know any young people who want to learn how to do what we do? Because that's the biggest flaw. I mean, we're set up here. We have six individual kind of carols, plus a big classroom in the back and an office that we pretty much only use for Zoom classes. Yeah. And we use whatever we have to use here. We've got about 1,600 square feet of space. Yeah. It's not very big. Yeah. But it's, uh, let's see. Richard's just going to take us on a tour here. (laughs) Yeah. But he'll talk it aloud. Oh, wow. This is really. Gorgeous. Look at that. Yeah. How cute. We designed it with the architect. So and nice. the, archi- the architect was a guy whose daughter we helped. Oh, it's so lovely. So he's which is showing me what we call cubbies. Looks a little bit like Elizabeth's office full of <laughs> materials. And, oh, it looks so nice. I really want to come and visit you. I'm anytime. <laughs> Hopefully when we actually have children, it's better with kids. <laughs> yeah, it's so much better to see them working. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, for those of um, my listeners that haven't been to a clinic, the first thing that normally happens when people come in, particularly parents, they're like, 
wow, how do you get any work done with all this noise, all these beepers and clickers and 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 woohoos and and isn't it incredible that kids just you know work and and no level of noise distracts them. My parents are always like, especially my kids on the spectrum, oh my goodness, my kid is never gonna tolerate this level of noise. And literally they <laughs> never bat an eyelid. They're so engaged and working at such a pace that you know the noise doesn't even occur to them. We're, you know what I noticed? The best thing is, I'm going to turn the light back on. We're losing our son here. What I notice is if there's only two kids and two tutors working, then it gets to be a distraction because yeah, you can make right. up. Yeah, but if, there's, if we've got five, six kids working at the same time, it's wonderful. I mean, it's yeah. just noise. Incredible energy score. level, right, at that pace. Yeah. yeah. So, like, we're coming up for an hour now, Richard. I have... Loved this so much. I had no idea about your journey. I know that we sort of skimmed across a lot of things. Um, I guess I want to finish by saying, uh, I think I asked you in an email, like if we have this skill deficit in this incredible field that I just happened to find my way to because of my daughter that I love so much, how can we attract people coming out of education and, and behavior analysis? What can we offer them, do you think, that uh, allows them to see a, a career trajectory within precision teaching, how can we, for anyone that's listening to this podcast, how could you urge them? I think your story alone is incredible and I'm hoping that people will reach out. What could you say to them that, you know, has over all of your decades of work that might cause them to say, gee, I better look into that crazy blue chart? I guess for me, because my own children, so I have four daughters. Right. And three of those. What's that? We missed that bit. <laughs> yeah, we missed my daughters entirely. They, they won't mind. They won't <laughs> listen to this anyway. But my daughter, Caitlin, when she was in first grade, had stomach aches five days a week. Yeah. And it was clear to me that because she loved school, she was a very social little girl. And uh, I thought the only thing that's different is they're teaching reading in first grade. And it's, she's, something's wrong with that. So she and I, when I mentioned that to her, I said, you know what, Caitlin, because our, our pediatrician wanted to give her medication. And I'm like, you're not sick. Yeah. I think that's all that's happened is this reading thing doesn't make sense to you. And that's, and I said, I, I know a really good book we could get. And you and I could work on reading. And she said, Dad, let's get in the car and go get that book. Oh, wow. She knew what it was. <laughs> and that's still what I see. I mean, here in the United States, 40% of our population cannot read above a fourth or fifth grade level. And that's why we have some of our political issues. People don't, can't read, can't understand what they're reading. 40%. And, mm -hmm, it's frightening. At least to me, if you look around, if you're a parent or if you're contemplating being a parent, or if you see a little child, I mean, most of the children we see, like my little guy from two years ago. Yeah who have problems with reading also have problems with their behavior. I have a little girl now who's like <laughs> proud of her bad behavior. She said to me the other day, am I the worst behaved student you've ever had? And I'm like, no, no. no. But I said, but you're good. You're the best. You're the worst one right now. <laughs> she was pretty proud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hilarious. So, but she's reading 
really, I mean, she's taking off. She's a third grader who couldn't read and was yeah. really unhappy. Yeah. And, uh, and now she's, she's getting better every time she comes. And it's really, it's so noticeable and obvious, both in her behavior and then in, in her skills, because I mean, her charts will look like rockets. But I feel like, to some degree, what I had hoped by starting in a, in a classy, expensive suburb was saying, all right, it's kind of this special stuff for really wealthy people thinking maybe that will help. It won't be the, it'll be a little sweeter to people than saying, oh yeah, it's for those kids on the spectrum or it's kids for dyslexic. It, trying to figure out how do we make it so that it's a magnet that pulls people in. And I don't feel like we've gotten there yet, but that's, we did a, a couple other folks and I did a, a website called Breaking the Code that's all about that. Oh, good. Uh, about reading and issues in reading and how bad they are. And now myself and another little group of people have started something called Essential Reading Instruction Solutions. And we're working to do similar things. And we're going to have to figure out how do we embed the chart into things? Because without that, most of these programs that people are clinging to are just mumbo jumbo. They're not going to be very effective. Yeah. Well, look, that's a lot of resources that I can link to. So I will um, make sure that they're in our show notes for everybody. What an incredible life you've had. And it just really strikes me that your dad would have been incredibly proud of your stand and all of the things that you came across and um, your ability to look through people's disability and their culture and background and just and look at what people need to be happy and successful. And um, I just, this is, I didn't know what to expect in interviewing you because I just didn't know much about you and your background and just, it's, it's just been an absolute delight to talk to you and what an honour to be in touch with you. I have lots of questions for you that I'm going to reach out if that's okay. I have a little oh, guy that, <laughs> that I'm working with and, um, yeah, I'm just always looking for input on him. And, um, yeah, is, it, is there a message that you want to leave uh, for people about your journey or something that's struck you or something that you live with, a motto or something? Yeah, I guess there is. I mean, some of it is from Bill, you know, yeah. uh, make the impossible possible. We I did a, that. we tried to do something with a local town about that because I think that's still the biggest problem. And then I was fortunate. I spent three years working in a consulting group that did training of executives and managers. And a lot of the work was diversity training. Uh, was owned by two black men who were both really great at selling and really great at uh, social psychology. They had social psychology backgrounds. Um, so the thing I learned from them that I also learned from probably more than anyone from Eric is you really have to have high expectations. That is the yeah. key to any kind of progress your students are going to make. Once you have those expectations, then you can start to think, okay, we have to build, oh, we've got to build this and then this and then this. But without those expectations and without, con and without building a student's confidence that they can do things, they won't. That's the most important thing is to help students build their confidence. I really love that. It's, it just really reminds me of something that I read recently. I have taken on a school and I'm consulting to them to teach their teachers to chart, which is really exciting because no teachers have ever asked me that before. But one of my parents was very motivated to get precision teaching into a school. And 
So I'm, I'm starting, we've, we've done the training and, and tomorrow we're meeting to, to start, set the targets, the first teaching targets, which is very exciting. But I use Patrick McGreevy's materials amongst Michael Maloney's as well. But one of the things he said there in, I can't remember how he described it, one of them was choose something hard to teach, which I just really struck me as interesting. But I guess that's in the same frame of what you've just said, like have high expectations of what's possible and then you're going to have to find a way to get there. Do you think that's mm-hmm. what? He was saying? Yes, absolutely. I have no shortage of kids who are coming sort of math phobic. And one of the things that I will often teach them is the times nines, which actually are very simple. We have a really nice, gentle way to teach it. And so often in schools, kids are terrified or they use their fingers. They have this weird yeah. finger method that they use. Yeah, what a and it's barrier. just, it's an awful barrier. So trying, just teaching them, there's a really simple way to do this. Yeah. And here's what it is. And they're like, oh, my God, I can do this. Yeah. And it it just creates a different level of confidence. Same with the Say and Spell program that Elizabeth devised. Seeing those charts go up and finding themselves able to suddenly do something at 180 or 200 in a minute. Yeah. After thinking, I'm just not good. I can't do things. Because kids take that information that they see around them, like my daughter did, and think they, they take it in as, I'm just not very smart. I'm not yeah. good. Yeah. I'm not good at this. These other kids are way better than me. And that's a killer. That, that yeah. kills confidence. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to finish by, I've, I've loved this so much. I want to finish with sharing something that has occurred for my daughter. You know, I just got really lucky in finding my way to PT. I guess I just was one of those person people that would just never give up. But um, back in when I was living yep. in Indiana in, gosh, what year was that? I'm not as good as dates with all of the guys that have interviewed on this podcast. You guys are just amazing with numbers. Anyway, yeah, I guess that was 2014. You know, she was sitting in an ABA school in the middle of Indiana, like having five opportunities to learn something each day. You know, they're trying to teach her reading comprehension. You know, my daughter's language was so impaired back then and she would, my daughter has the most energy on the planet, but she was falling asleep, you know, being taught that way. They had an hour-long DRO and she was literally falling asleep. It was just, anyway, that motivated me to go to the Precision Teaching Conference because I, was, I wanted to go and meet Karen Pryor. Anyway, last night, oh, I might cry when I say this, but so I met Kimberly Behrens there and she took me under her wing, bless her, cotton socks, and um. Last night, I sent her a video of Juliet doing perplexes, which is like complex problem solving. And Those my daughter could barely have a conversation. And she texts me, which is, you know, it was late <laughs> last night when I sent it through to her, I guess early her time. And she's like, I am just blown away by this. Remember where we came from? And um, she worked with my daughter in America and, and in Australia. And I remember her having the biggest stand for my daughter. like like teaching her complex comparative relations and spatial relations. And Juliet would be, <laughs> Juliet would say this way, like behind, because she, you know, just <laughs> learning <laughs> the complexities of relational positions and sizings and everything back then. But she pushed her and she had the biggest belief in my daughter. And this video of her doing perplexes, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me sharing it, but it is like what is possible for a kid that, you know, has a, di- a pretty high-level diagnosis, an IQ of about 40, doing complex problem solving. 
And she's going to be able to apply those things to everything that she's learning how to do, like, you know, catch the train and those things. But you know what? Dr. Kim had the biggest stand for her and, you know, an anger and a passion about her that, you know, anything is possible. So I'm finishing on that note because of my own story, but I'm just urging anybody that, you know, it's, it's incredible if you have that stand for somebody that, so, yeah, don't put limits on people about what's possible because I never thought that would have happened for my daughter. Um, and it's at 17, so she has, there's so much hope for her still. Bless you. Thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for sharing your incredible journey. Thank you for having me. Bless you. And that was Richard McManus, who made this podcast so easy and such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Richard, for sharing your journey and your learnings, including having the highest expectations of your clients and instilling confidence in those you work with. That was episode nine of the ABA MPT podcast.